0: All right, Book of Romans. Book of Romans. Today is going to be do what? I know, I know. So, you're you're, you're you are excused for uh, not doing well on the review on this. Okay, that, that's now. If we go back to De Verbum tonight, we do a review. You're no excuse. Okay, but for this, you, that, that's two reviews. I've given you uh, the. Uh, I've given you mercy, right? First, the first big review we did back on Day Verbum, I gave mercy, and now this one. So see, just be thankful, right? Okay, yeah, okay, right? So, all right, here we go, all right. Book of Romans. Now, there is no obviously easy way to jump back into this, so we're going to have to just kind of work our way back through a whole lot of information and try to get us um, all on the same page so that we can move forward, Go, uh, uh, you know, and another sermon, because this one, there's no, if I, just doing the review is going to take up the whole sermon. So I'm going to do my very best to try, try to get us there, all right? Now, I'm not going to go review everything about the overview of the book and all of that. I'm not going to do that. But let's go back to uh, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And let's start with a very important uh, principle here, because I think it's very important. Um, In verse 16, we have a very famous verse that everyone knows. A lot of people memorize it. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, where Paul, writing to the uh, believers at Rome, or to the individuals at Rome, he made this very clear, that he is not ashamed of something. And what is he not ashamed of? The gospel of Christ. When we say the gospel, remember we talked about the the Greek word, right? Evangelion, we talked about how it was used in uh, the Septuagint. Um, and you know the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. We talked all about that. I'm not going to ask you to re- remember all of that, but but ultimately, when we when he says he is not ashamed of the gospel, in simple terms, what is he referencing? Okay, good news is how we typically translate it. The message of salvation, right? Found in Jesus Christ. The message that Jesus came to die for us as sinners and putting our faith in him. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ for our salvation, right? A message of salvation. So he's not ashamed of this message. Why is he not ashamed of this message? There's power. Now, this remember we stated that there's probably a reason he states it this way, because Rome understood what? power and he's like this message and this message that is going to be attacked you may even be embarrassed to have this message right I'm, I'm embarrassed to share this message with people don't be embarrassed of it because it is powerful and powerful in what way it has the power of of God to salvation everybody see that right to everyone that believeth now this so let's stop right here The gospel is the message of salvation, of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It has power, but the power is not a political power, societal power. It is a power to salvation. It's the power that leads a sinner to being saved, redeemed, saved from their sins, saved from the wrath of God. All right? Now... But the power of the the salvation that comes from the gospel is only to those who do what—believe. There has to be belief, or there is no salvation. And this gospel, this power, this salvation is for whom? Okay, Jew. uh, Yeah, well, it says to everyone that believeth. That's you got to believe to get it. But very, he makes it very clear to the Jew first and also to the Greek or Gentile. Jew and Gentile world. Now this is very important because this sets up a major argument for how the, for how the rest of chapter 1 and the rest of chapter 2 proceeds. Because there's this argument, who is he speaking to in the rest of chapter 1? Who is he speaking to in chapter 2? Some believe who he's speaking to in the rest of chapter 1 and uh, chapter 2 deals with uh, some of the message is for the Gentile and some of the message is for the Jew. Now, he starts in this verse by stating who first. Jew, then Gentile. Most agree that starting in verse 18, he doesn't start with the Jew, he starts with the Gentile. Which is like, well, wait a minute, he just said to the Jew... First, right? Isn't that what he said? But he starts in reverse order. Some believe. Okay, we can get into a discussion. Ultimately, though, as Diane said, the gospel is for whom? Everyone that believes. Because without belief, the gospel, there is no power uh, in it without belief. Okay, everybody got that? All right, now, that's very important. Now, verse 17, famous verse. We kind of argued against, some of the traditional interpretation of it, I'm not going to get back into that because that led into my email box, not a lot of people being mad at me, so I'm not going to go back through it. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, that it is written the just shall live by faith." okay Very important verse, especially when it comes to the Reformation. We looked at uh, where does that verse quoted from? Where's Paul quoting from? Habakkuk 2:4. We went back to Habakkuk 2:4. And we, we thought, well, wait a minute, the way it's used in Habakkuk doesn't seem to be the way a lot of people use it in Romans. What should guide our interpretive principle here, right? Shouldn't Habakkuk guide our interpretive principle? Remember, we talked a lot about that, so I'm not going to go through all of that again. All right, so now we get to verse 18. Now, my Bible has a heading, and it says, The Gentiles guilty before God. How many Bibles have some kind of heading that argues... They're arguing that the next section is all about the Gentiles. Maybe true. Okay? Seems odd that he would say the Jew first and the Gentile and then start with the Gentiles, but maybe he's he's got a purpose to his argument. All right. But let's go through this. What happens in verse 18 and following? Verses eighteen to thirty-two, he's making a, a, a kind of a, an argument. And can we summarize the argument, or do I need to really break it all down for us? Okay. Well, we're obviously we're going to have to work through, the, work through it. Okay, we'll go relatively quick. Okay, um, because I, I don't have time to. I, I don't want to pre-preach all of it, but I'm, I'm trying to rely on you on what you remember or what you don't remember. So here we go. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. So what do we have in verse 18? We have God's wrath. Agreed? What is it revealed against? <clears throat> all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And then here's a key phrase. Of men who do what? Who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Okay, what truth... Now, again, <clears throat> we could get into an argument of who he's speaking of here, but it, his wrath is revealed against all ungodliness, against all unrighteousness, but there are men who do what? Hold the truth in unrighteousness. Correct? What truth do they hold in unrighteousness? Well, we start in verse 19 because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. And we talked about two sources of truth here. Remember, I broke this down. Now, not all all translations agree with me here, but I said that even if, if this verse is not necessarily arguing it, that every person, now he's focusing on the Gentiles here, we think, but all people have truth an internal and an external. What's the internal? God's law written on their hearts, and we believe that. Remember we talked about conscious, conscious, and but we won't get back into all of that. Every person has an internal instinctive idea that there is right and there is wrong. We got young people in here who I don't think they care much. I don't know if they care much about the scriptures or pay much attention to scriptures. Sometimes I don't think they care much about what I have to say. Okay, but they, they no matter if they care about God, no matter if they read the scriptures, no matter if they care at all, I guarantee you Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you hear them speak about things being right, being wrong, that's not fair, can you believe so-and-so did this, can you believe so-and-so did that, issuing a lot of judgmental language. Where does that come from? Now, they don't even have a basis on where to argue. Sometimes Christian kids raised in a Christian home who don't really care about Scripture will use the Bible to, to condemn other people, Isn't that convenient, right? I mean, use the Bible to condemn that person, okay? Uh, not realizing it condemns them as well. But there's something inside all of humanity that believes that there's something that is right and wrong. That is God's law written on the heart. That truth, though, is held in what way? And unrighteousness, and I just demonstrated how it works, right? A young person who doesn't really care about God, doesn't care about the scriptures, will then say, that person is wrong. They shouldn't have done that. And when you ask them, well, why? Why are you saying that's wrong? Sometimes, especially kids raised in a Christian home, will all of a sudden, quote, well, the Bible says it's wrong. Well, congratulations, the Bible says you're wrong. <laughs> okay, so maybe you should worry about yourself first, okay? Right? True? Right? Hold it on. We have all held it in unrighteousness. Agreed? I mean, even as Christians, we sometimes still hold it in un- unrighteousness. Okay? And then what's the other truth that they hold in unrighteousness? The external. And what is the external? Look at verse 20. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, uh, being understood by the things that are made, even the eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. No one has an excuse. No one. Right? Um, everyone in this room, at one day you're going to die, you're going to stand before God, and I'm sorry, no excuse is going to work. Right? Because you have an internal and an external. And the external is nature. And what does nature at least should scream at you? There is a God. There is a God. There is a God. It doesn't tell you which God, but it should tell you there is a God. And because it tells you there is a God, then what logically should occur is you should care to discover who this God is what he teaches, so that you can serve, obey, and follow him. Because if there is a God, then nothing in life will matter that's separated from God. Because if God is the source and origin of everything, then purpose can only be found in God. Right? That's a basic concept. But you know plenty of people who don't care. They don't, they don't care. I, I, I don't know how they live, that there, that's that's why I love the uh, the allegory of the cave. There's plenty of people are content to sit inside the cave not knowing anything. For me, once I started figuring out what well, if there's a God, I need to figure out what God it is. I got it because if God's the origin of everything, then by logic, purpose can only be found in God. Right? That's. But I, I I put it this way: the people who sit in the cave, I don't know how to speak to the people in the cave. All right, I. That's where my. That's where I. That's where. That's where I have a problem ministering to people. The people who are content to just be dumb, I don't. I. I, I don't know what to do. Because my, my, my message is go in there and just kick them out of their chair and just drag them out of the cave and go. What is your problem? And that's probably not the best way to do it. Right. So I need people who are who can understand the people in the cave to go inside the cave and bring them out. And when they bring them out, then I'm, I'm like, okay, now we can talk. Maybe, maybe, because I may just walk you right back in the cave and say, this is just where you need to stay. Okay, okay. I'm not very good with that. But that all of humanity, we, we're, we're in this, we all fit in this problem to some level, right? There are plenty who are willing to leave the cave to find the answers, but because of their sinful nature, they may find answers and wrong places, right? Does that make sense? So just leaving the cave is not enough. You've got to leave the cave and turn to the true God. But sitting in the cave is kind of a not a good thing. Everyone agree with that? Or if you don't agree with that, I don't know what to tell you. The cave is not a good place to be. For those listening online, go, what cave is he talking about? It's a cave here in West Texas where a lot of people live, okay? Okay, okay. No, I, I'm joking it's, a, it's from Plato's Allegory of the Cave. Look it up on Google, okay? Go- Siri or Google can help you, okay? Even, Ele- even Amazon, Alexa can help you as well, okay? So just look it up. All right, so that gets us there. So far, so good? Now, what happens in verse 21 and following? All right, there's a downward spiral that kind of just moved downward, and why does everyone move downward? They move downward as a result of doing what? To the two sources of truth. Suppressing and rejecting the truth. Once the truth is rejected and suppressed, then what begins to happen? Verse, uh, 19, or verse uh, 21. Because that, when they knew God, and when did they know God? Well, they all know God at least in part, right? Because they got two sources of revelation of God. What are those two sources? Internal, external. Those are not complete. And we, what do we do with those two sources? Hold it in. Unrighteousness. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm try- I know this is like the, I hate doing reviews like this because we're just, we're going so fast. It's not, I know you're thinking it's not fast, but trust me. Each one of these verses is worth a couple of years of study. Okay, all right. Because then when they, knew, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imagination, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, <coughs> fools if I can speak right, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and a four-footed beast and creeping things. Once they reject the true God, what becomes next? What, what's the first step downward? Okay, idolatry and self-worship, right? Remember we talked about these? Yes? Okay, all right. Wherefore God gave them unto uncleanliness, to the lust of their own hearts, and to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, worshipped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So what happens? They begin to, look, they turn from God, but because there's an instinctive understanding that there is a God, they create gods. Either idolatry, but what's the ultimate God they create? Self. They create self. And then what ultimately happens? They begin to serve what? The creature. Self. And then what does that look, at, look like? Starting in verse 26 and down, what does it turn into? Fleshly behavior sexual sin, and all kinds of depravity. Correct? Why? Because they're going to serve self. They're going to serve self. And where does this ultimately lead to? Well, look at, look at how bad it gets, okay? Obviously, homosexual is, uh, homosexuality is mentioned there. Everyone focuses on the homosexuality. Everyone focuses on the homosexuality. I don't know why everyone focuses. I know why everyone in the church focuses on the homosexuality, because most of you probably don't have a struggle with homosexuality. So you, fo- you focus on that because it has nothing to do with what? <laughs> you, okay. So it's easy to condemn them. However, what, what else is uh, mentioned here? Verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness. Fornication, all right. That's uh, sexual in- uh, immorality of all kinds, de- typically dealing with premarital sex. Some will say sexual immorality can relate also to pornography, all right. Wickedness, covetousness, there's never a major outcry over covetousness in the church, is there? No, no, no outcry over that. Maliciousness, full of, yeah, I don't see a lot of concern about envy. We got envy in the church. We need, we need to take a stand against envy. Now We're, we're going to boycott anything that relates to homosexuality. We're not too worried about envy. I can't believe all the TV shows now have homosexual couples. This is outrageous. Well, what about all the shows that show envy? I've never seen Christians too upset about shows that have envy in it. They're not outraged over it, right? Not going to boycott. Because we don't care about envy, do we? We don't care about covetousness. Murder. Now, murder, remember, according to Jesus, goes beyond just the external act. Internal. Debate. Deceit. Malignity. Whisperers. Backbiters. Oh, there's never been gossip in a church. Ever. Ever. Well, why gets all the press, though? Homosexuality. Why? Because we, we can put the focus on someone else. Haters of God, despiteful, proud. There's never been proud people in the church, ever. Boasters, inventors of evil, th- disobedient to parents. That has never happened once. Please know, disobedient to parents put in the same category as homosexuality. And murder. Doesn't get a lot of press, does it? Oh, if a show has a homosexual character, we're ready to boycott. But a show can have kids who are disobedient to their parents, and I guess that's perfectly okay. Because we focus on what? That sin is horrible! But our sin is always okay, right? Without understanding... Covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, they who commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them to do them. Please note, the worthy to do death, worthy of death, seems to imply, seems to include whom? All of these things. What always gets the press about wanting to put to death? homosexuals. That's who we want put to death. We don't want all these other things put to death because it would include what? Ourselves. So when you have preachers up there screaming, homosexuals should be put to death, we'll go through the rest of the list because the, next, the first bullet that should be fired in killing a person will probably be the pastor preaching the sermon. Himself. Amen? All right, so, but all of those things occur for, why do all those things occur? I want to make it very clear. Why do all of those things occur? I'm trying to make sure we have a logical progression and thought here. We reject the internal and external witness, the revelation of God. And as a result, what do we begin to worship? Ourself. And when we worship self, what do we want to please? The creature more than the creator. And then what do we do? What is our natural self made up of? A sinful, fleshly desire. So we begin to try to please the flesh. And we do that in what kinds of ways? Obviously in sexual ways. But it doesn't just include homosexuality. Fornication. I think the Greek word there is porneia. Okay, where we get the word pornography, I think it believes includes all forms of sexual immorality. We only want to put the press on, on the homosexual kind, all kinds. And But then, for those of you who are sitting here go well, I don't have, I've never had a problem with a sexual sin, you're still included in those lists. I can find you. Okay. Do what? Right. The one that says proud, probably that one, right? Because look at me, I'm not like those other people, right? Yeah, yes, we're all in there. Boasters, we're all there. So where do we end up at the end of verse 32? Where do we end up in verse 32? Okay. Well, let me state it this way. You know where we find ourselves in verse 32? Worthy of death. Now, some believe that's all Gentiles. Maybe it is. Okay? If it is Gentiles, who else does it include? Include Jews as well, but... The, the Jews, he's going to focus on them a little bit differently, it appears. okay Now, starting in chapter 2. All right? Man, this is taking a whole lot longer than I wanted, but that's okay. Chapter 2. Now, the big debate in chapter 2 is who is Paul addressing? Who is Paul addressing in chapter 2? Because look what happens in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore. What's the therefore, therefore? Based on what we just read. How did we end chapter 1? Worthy of death. Therefore, thou art inexcusable. All right. Hey, no one is, everyone is without excuse, okay? Inexcusable. Whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself, for thou that judgest doest the same things. Whoever he's speaking in chapter 2, it's almost like he knows what's going to happen. He gets to verse 32 going, all these people are worthy of death, and there's going to be a group of people who say what? Amen. Put them to death. They're ungodly, unrighteous, they're filthy, they're dirty, they're perverted. They must be removed. And what does he start in chapter 2? Whoa, slow down. Now who are these people that he's anticipating are going to be ready to judge all of those in chapter 1? Where there are two views. Remember the two views? View number one, these are moral pagans. They're living a moral life who do not commit the exact same sins listed in chapter 1, 18 to 32. These are just moral pagans. They're not, they're not Christians. They're, not, they're just pagans, but they're living a moral life. And there are pagans who live moral life. There are atheists who live moral lives. Okay? Don't ever think that they can't. They, they, can, they, can, they can attempt to live a moral life. Right? Next... The next view is that this is Jews. Okay? Religious, moral Jews. The reason many believe these are Jews is because starting in Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 16, you have a discussion of what? What do you have a discussion of in Romans 2, 12 through 16? The law. Who would would a discussion about the law have been most meaningful to? The Jews. So some argue that's the Jews. Some say 217 clearly identifies who he's speaking to. What does chapter 2, verse 17 say? Behold, thou art called a Jew, and uh, restest in the law, and makest thy thy boast of God. Some say verse 17 makes it clear who he's talking to. Starting in chapter 2, he's turned his attention to the Jews. Therefore, that would make the argument that one, 18 and following, by default, would be the Gentiles. That is how the argument goes. All right. Whoever it is, Paul sets out to make some important points. Okay, whoever it is, we're going to think it's the Jews, but whoever it is, he's going to try to make some important points. Are you ready to list all the points Paul wants to make in chapter 2? Right, right, we're just going to make a list and try to work through these as fast as we can. You ready? Here we go. This is, we're going to play this game a little different this morning. All right, I'm going to give you verses. You tell me what point he tries to make. All right, for those listening online... I know you're like, wait a minute, you're not going to read them to me? No. So you're going to have to, if you're listening in the car, pull over. Okay, all right, here we go. I don't know what to tell you. All right, here we go. Someone look at verse 1. Verse 1. What is Paul trying to say in verse 1? Chapter 2, verse 1. Okay, our ability to judge is broken. What else is he saying? He's speaking to a specific group of people. What is he telling them? Inexcusable? What were you going to say? Okay. All right, look at verse 3. What does he say in verse 3? Are you going to be judged too? What does he say in verse 5? 1, 3, and 5. What's Paul saying? I'll help you. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself, for thou that judgest doest the same things. Everybody got that? They do the same things. Verse 3. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them, which do such things, and doest the same that thou shalt escape the judgment of God. Verse 5. But after the hardness and impenitent heart treasured up unto thyself, wrath against the day of, of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Simply put, the first point he wants them to, to realize is this. You are guilty. Now, yes, Sarah was right. They're, they're going to be judged. Yes, their judgment is broken. Yes, we did a long discussion on that. But the main thing to get is they're guilty. And they're guilty in what way? They're somehow guilty in the same way the people in chapter 1, verses 18 to 32 are guilty, right? Right. But the main thing I want you to focus on here is they're guilty. They're guilty like who? The individuals in 1, 18 to 32. Now, he keeps saying they do the same things. Do they do the same things in the same way? We probably don't think they're doing things in the same way, but what we've got, we remember a very important truth. Jesus condemns external sin as well as internal. Matthew 5 and following, you can commit adultery by actually committing the act, but you can just look and with lust commit adultery. You can murder with the external act, but you can murder in your heart. So Jesus condemns both. They may not be guilty in the exact same way the people in 1 18 to 32 are, but they're still guilty. Probably in what way? They look Outwardly, they probably look very religious, but inwardly, they are sinful. It's hard for Christians to... Here's the thing. Christians will condemn homosexuality to the 19th level of hell and say that a person cannot be a Christian and have homosexual desires. That's been a big debate over recent years. I will never understand how we can say a person can't be a Christian and have homosexual desires. It makes no sense because all of you are Christians and you all have... Sinful desires. But it's they can't have that sinful desire. Here's the thing. You may not be guilty of homosexuality, but you can still be guilty of sexual sin even if you've never committed anything in action. You can still be guilty of murder even though you've never murdered anyone. From a biblical perspective, there are people sitting in prison today who are murderers, and you're no better than them. Now you're going to like, well, I am. Well, you may be in a very like humanistic approach. They took a life, but you've taken a lot of lives in your mind and in your heart. You've probably taken mine a few times. Right? Don't shake your head. No, you probably have. Okay? You may have brought me back to life, but you've probably killed me. Just bring me back to life to kill me again. Okay? All right? So just please, please note, there are prodigal sons... And there's older brothers. Remember the story? The prodigal man, he went off and he was, he did it all. He was horrible. Ended up in a pigsty, right? Man, what a mess. But his older brother sat at home looking all good. Looking all right. But what do we discover about the older brother? He was a prodigal, he just never left home. His heart wasn't right. It was bitter. He wasn't excited. His brother came back. Okay, everybody remember the story? Okay, all right, all right. So that is very important. Everybody got so everybody got that. Okay. So what's the first major point he wants everyone to know? They're all guilty. So no matter who the, ultimately it doesn't matter who he's speaking of in which chapter, if it's Jew or Gentile, because where do they both end up? Guilty. Worthy of. Yeah. Okay. Very important. Okay. Next very important truth that I want you to see. All right. I think this is very important. Um, let's see here. Look at verse 2. What lesson does he want us to learn in verse 2? Romans two two. God judges according to truth. God judges according to truth. In other words, he doesn't judge according to what? External appearance. He judges according to truth. No matter what you claim, no matter what you think, he judges according to truth. That's an important claim. All right, number three. All right, verses four and five. What, are we, what, what lesson does Paul want us to know in verses four and five? Those listening online, no, not everyone in the church died. They're just sitting here looking at me. Okay, they are present, okay. They're probably thinking, what happened? No one is speaking. What happens in verse 4 and 5? What lesson? What does he want us to know? All right? okay, he, doesn't want, he wants them to know how good God is, but what does he want them to know about the goodness of God? It should lead to Repentance. Now, if he's speaking of Jews, this makes sense. Let's read it again. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance, but after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasure up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. If he's speaking of Jews, verse 4 and 5 would be very powerful. What has the Jews experienced? The goodness of God. I mean, what have they? They've received everything, have they not? I mean, they've received covenant. They've received blessing. They've received deliverance. They've seen prophets. They had the law. They had the tabernacle. They had the temple. They had kings. They had judges. They had everything. Right? What should it have led to? Repentance. But here's the thing human depravity has a way of treating the goodness of God with complete utter disdain I'll give you an example i've said it so many times kids i don't understand kids who are raised in a good home right they make no sense to me right because they sit around and whine and complain about things in their life and i'm just sitting there shaking my head going man they don't understand that the goodness that they have should lead them to a greater level of appreciation and love and respect and being gr- with gratitude and thankful, but they don't they don't know any difference. They don't know any difference like I, I've made the joke before that like the, I don't understand the Danzrs kids like how could they like they live in Disney World like it's some joke, like what is that nonsense, right? Like, oh, I love you, I love you, I love you. Oh, we're all a big family. Oh, what the, what is that garbage? Right? They need some abuse. They need to be beaten. They need to, they need to suffer. They need to be starved. They need, they need a, tied up in a closet and burnt with a curling iron. That's what they need. Okay? Because guess what? They would, they would understand the difference. Someone who's experienced some of those things, it's hard for me, like, what, what is your problem? But you'll have those, you my mom is so mean. Today. And they're whining like, you're like, what is your, what are you whining about? Right? And they almost show a lack of, well, we're all guilty of that. Right? Because we may not be Jews, who had all of this, but I think all of us are Breathing. And currently, none of us are experiencing the fires of hell. That's where everyone in this room should be right now as I speak. That goodness and long-suffering and mercy of God should lead you to a repentance and a greater appreciation. However, we all fall guilty. We don't appreciate sometimes the things we have in life. We don't appreciate family when it's good. We don't appreciate... We may not even... There, I mean, you, you've all, we've all done it. We have a job where we're making money, right? Where there's other people who don't have a job, you know, maybe homeless, and we're complaining about our... We've all been there. Right? Yes? Okay. That's our sinful nature. He's trying to make them realize the goodness of God should have led them to repentance, but it has not. Alright? Everybody got that? Yes? Okay. Next uh, thing he wants them to... uh, Look at verse (laughs) 6. Verse 6 is where the whole train went off the tracks. What's the next thing he wants them to know? God judges according to your deeds. Okay. Now... Let's let's remind ourselves. I'm not going to go through all the things that we discovered. What? Why? Why did this first cause so much so much trouble? I go in as fast. I got to go fast as I can here. The Bible, yeah. The Bible seems to be emphatic that we're going to be judged according to our works. But how can we be judged according to our works if justification is by grace alone through faith alone because of Christ alone? Makes no sense. So we looked at all the theories, right? We looked at all the theories. I've got a, see if this, uh, I don't know, if my, this battery, my iPad here is about to go and I need to get it replaced. But it's $120 to replace it. So until I start selling crack. Okay. Right. I'm joking. I'm not going to start selling crack. Okay. All right. Um. Where is it? They have a, this commentary I found yesterday, and I thought it was interesting. In um, Romans 2, 6-11, Paul was not teaching salvation by character or good deeds. He was explaining another basic principle, God's judgment. God judges according to deeds, just as he judges according to truth. Paul was dealing here with the consistent actions of a person's life. The total impact of his character and conduct. For example, David committed some terrible sins, but the total emphasis of his life was obedience to God. Now, remember we talked about all the theories that are out there? That theory sounds good if you have, I guess, if you don't give it three seconds of thought, but if you give it three seconds of thought, it seems to go against completely the teaching of justification by faith. And that author believes in justification by faith alone but he just taught a theory that contradicts it because this is what he's saying. Here's, your, here's Bobby's life, right? All right, Here's his sin. Oh, ooh, it dropped down. But here's the consistent nature of his life. Oh, 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 come on, come on, come on. Yes, he's saved. Now, is that justification by faith? What did that just describe? Works. And what, what do you have to have? Enough consistency that outweighs your bed. Oh! Why, why is that in a Protestant commentary? That, that's, that's what we accuse Roman Catholicism of. So how did we get around it? See if everybody remembers. If, if y'all don't remember this, I'm going to lay on the floor, curl up in the fetal position, and y'all can call an ambulance. Because we spent like six months on this. Okay, what was the view that we ultimately came up to because every other view fell completely and utterly apart? Okay, we are going to be judged according to works. But well, we believe those works are the works of Christ that are imputed to us, which is the definition of justification. And so when we stand before God, the works of Christ, not the works I do, I want to make, because there was massive confusion in here when we tried to talk about it. It's not the works I do that Christ is doing through me, because that would still be my works. The works of Christ that are imputed to my account, which include active, passive obedience. God can judge those because those works are... He will judge my works, but that will re- determine reward, not salvation. Right? That, nobody else came up with our theory. Our theory may be 100% wrong, but every other theory falls completely and utterly apart. Right? right? Even the Catholic view falls utterly and completely apart. Because if my works are involved in any way, shape, or form, where am I going to end up? There's no way. There's... Their system is convoluted, as convoluted. Okay, I got to do this, I got to do penance, I got to do this, I got to do this, I got to do this, I got to do... Well, it's just... Look, the average Catholic doesn't do all the things that they're supposed to do. You know why? Because the average Catholic is what? A sinner. I mean, come on. Would y'all do all the things you're supposed... If y'all were Catholic, well, y'all wouldn't start doing all the things you're supposed to do? Would y'all be going to daily Mass? No, you wouldn't. No. Are you doing the rosary? You wouldn't do it every day. You're not going to do the liturgy of the hours. You're not going to do half the things you're supposed to do. You wouldn't be doing any of it. But, but they all pat themselves on the back that they're somehow going to... No! You, it, it's, it's not that simple. Does that make sense? All right. So, but God judges according to deeds. Now, what does he do in verse 11? Now, remember, verse 6 all the way to 11 is... is what He basically does what in 6 through 10? says God's going to judge according to deeds, and he says it a bunch of different ways, right? If you do good, what happens? Eternal life. If you do bad, condemnation, right? Everybody agree? He, he emphasizes it like there's no way to get around what he's trying to say, right? Now remember, what do some, some pastors do with verses uh, 6 through 10? Claim it's hypothetical. Only problem is, why did we not go with the hypothetical view? Because even if we went with the hypothetical view, the idea that God judges according to works is all over the Bible. It can't be hypothetical. Now, I do believe, make, make this very clear, if you read Romans straight through, it makes you want to say this is hypothetical. I agree. But it doesn't work. It, it's, I think what he's ultimately going to say here is this. God's going to judge you according to works. right? Because so far, make this very clear, in chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 2, verse 6, he's dealing with two groups of people. Would you argue that the two groups of people he's, he's speaking of are not saved? Right. So ultimately what he's arguing is that, hey, unsaved person, right? You're going to be judged according to your works and your deeds and he's making an argument that unless your deeds are basically what? Perfect, you're not going to be saved. So in that sense, it's a little hypothetical. But the point is, it's still a reality, right? Now, later on, he's going to have to tell us, I think, ultimately, what we believe. He's going to teach we're justified by faith, which is the imputed righteousness of Christ. And if that includes his works, then my, I will be judged according to deeds, too. But it's the deeds imputed to my account. Does that make sense? All right, I think, I think so. All right, what does he do in verse 11? All right, no respecter of persons. What, what what's the point is he trying to make there? He's going to judge Jew and Gentile the same. Now, this does not negate promises made to Israel, okay, this is where um, all millennialists come and just try to do away with, you know, I don't know, 900 books of the Bible, okay? Obviously, there's not 900 books, but you get the idea. All right, Th- this is the idea that when God judges, He's going to judge on the basis of your untruth and according to your deeds, and it's not going to matter Jew or Gentile. Does that make sense? Yeah, okay, all right. Then, um, what does He do in verse 12 to 24? Well, let's read 12 to 24. Everybody ready? All right. For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law. And as many have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. All right? What is, uh, now, you don't have to write this down yet. I'm going to work through this and we'll summarize this section. What is verse 12 saying? Law and no law. What, he's, he's dealing with two groups of people. Who are the no law people? Gentiles. Who are the law people? Jews. And what's going to happen to both? They're going to be judged, right? In other words, the Gentile may not have the law, but what's going to happen to them? They're going to sin without it, but they're going to still perish. And there are others who have it, they're going to be perished. Because we're all sinners, Right? So whether you have the law or don't have the law, you're going to be a sinner and you're still going to be judged. All right? For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but doers of the law should be justified. Now that, that sounds like works, but what is he arguing? If you're going to work in a law-based system, what do you have to do? And keep it perfectly. All right. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law, are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. And the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus according to my gospel." Uh, "...behold, thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God, and knowest his will, and approvest the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that thou thyself art a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes which hast the form of knowledge, and of the truth and law. Thou therefore which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself?" That thou preachest preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Thou that makest the boast of the law, through breaking the law, dishonoreth thou God. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you as it is written. Okay, do you know what happened in verse 12 to 24? He mentions two laws. Two laws are mentioned in 12 to 24. What are the two laws in 12 to 24? The law written on the heart. That's for whom? The Gentiles, right? I mean, ultimately for all people, but in this argument, he's making it for the Gentiles. They don't have an external law, right? They have an internal law. And what happens? They go, they sin against that internal law. And they break the law, and they're going to be judged. And what do the Jews have? They have an external law, and they walk around thinking that they're obeying the external law and teaching everyone else. They're going like, hey, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't commit idolatry, don't commit adultery. And then what does he ultimately say about them? You're guilty. Now, how are they guilty? Maybe not of the external act, but of the internal act. And because of their sin, what had happened according to verse 24? The God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles though, through you as it is written. Now, in other words, the Gentiles say, wait a minute, you're no better than us. While the Jews were running around claiming they were better. And we didn't we say that with the Pharisees? Running around condemning everyone. And what did they ultimately plot? To murder someone. But they wouldn't go into the house of a Gentile because they would be defiled. While well, they were planning to murder someone. We're all all guilty of that. Why are we all guilty of doing this with truth? Because we hold the truth in unrighteousness. People pick up a Bible and they start using the Bible for their own means. Right? And then they start using it to condemn this person, to condemn this person, to condemn that person, and never thinking, wait a minute, I'm guilty too. And sometimes while we're condemning people, we're actually sinning. Right? Yes? Okay. Then one last section. What's the last section about? 25 and following. 25 to 29. Circumcision. Okay, good. Everybody should be able to see that. Let me read it. For circumcision, verily profiteth if thou keep the law, but if thou be a breaker of the law, that circumcision is made uncircumcision. Okay, well, you... You're, you're going you're gonna to focus on your circumcision, yay, I've got circumcision, wonderful, great, but what happens when you break the law? What does the verse say? What does it become? Why, why is, what is he trying to say? Do, focusing on circumcision makes you focus on what? The law. You're focusing on law-keeping. Well, if you're going to focus on law-keeping, what happens the second you break the law? You're condemned even if you're circumcised. Does everybody see what he's trying to say here? Therefore, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not the uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? And shall not uh, uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee, who by the letter and circumcision does transgress the law? For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision, which is outwardly in the flesh." But he is a Jew which is one inwardly and circumcision is of the heart and the spirit and not in the letter whose praise is not of men but of God. What advantage then hath the Jew or what prophet is... Or well, now we're getting to chapter 3. We'll stop right there. Okay. He talks about circumcision and what's his main argument here? External circumcision is not what's going to make someone right with God. What's going to make someone right with God is not an external act. Right? But what? Well, he makes an argument. You, can, you could argue this two ways, right? <clears throat> we could argue this two ways. Circumcision doesn't profit anything. Uncircumcision doesn't profit anything. If anything's going to profit anything, number one, keeping the law. Right? Does he not seem to imply that will work? Yes? Okay. And then, what does he say in verse 29? But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. In other words, what he's arguing is ultimately what's required is an inward reality, not an external law. So where does he ultimately end up here? Where do we ultimately end up at the end of chapter 2? Everyone's condemned... Everyone's guilty, right? Everyone, no matter if they have the law or don't have the law, are going to be guilty. And whether they have circumcision or don't have circumcision, what's ultimately going to be required if you're going to be saved would be keeping the law. Now, that sounds good, but what are we going to ultimately discover, we think, in chapter 3 moving forward? No one can keep the law. Therefore, there has to be another means of salvation. That's where we think he is headed. So what's the whole point about saying we're going to be judged according to our deeds? You will be judged according to your deeds if you are what? Without Christ. And if you're judged according to your deeds, what's going to happen? Even if your external deeds are good, God judges the heart as well. I think that's, the, that's about the best I can do to get us to chapter 3. I had to kind of speed up there at the end. Does anybody have any questions? We already went longer than we needed to, but I had to finish this section. Any questions on any of it? Now chapter 3 is going to pick up circumcision again, so we may have to go back and work a little bit on that last section. So if you have questions, let me know, but I just want you to see the basic flow of thought. Basic flow of thought. Everyone is, is guilty. Everyone. Everyone's condemned. And keeping the law, the minute you break it, you're, you're in trouble. Right? No way to fix it. And so he would almost require what? If God's going to judge according to your deeds, what's going to be required? Perfection. And he seems to imply that no one can be perfect. Gentiles are not going to be. The Jews are not. Even if you get circumcised, it's not going to ultimately work because the minute you break the law, your circumcision is useless. So something else has to occur. Something else, and if that's something else, I think he's going to outline more in chapter three. Agreed? Well, I mean, he's going to continue on to drive on the point that we're all sinners. Yes? Then he's going to switch over. All right. I think that's I think that's the right way to interpret this. And uh, I I hate that we had to just do all review, but I mean, there was there was no way to get back into it. Agreed? We had to kind of go back. So now everyone has the flow of thought. All right, so start reading Romans chapter 3. Now, I know I always ask you to do things and you don't, but please, please, please start reading Romans chapter 3 over and over and over and over because now you should have the flow of thought. You should now be able to figure out how 3 picks up the, the train of thought. You should be able to identify that. So next Sunday when I ask you to identify that, somebody better speak up, okay? All right, so that's very important. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Lord, a very difficult section of Scripture. There is, no, there is no easy way around it. We tried our best to just summarize this. I hope everyone is now understands the, the argument here. We're all guilty. We should realize that when we start trying to condemn other people. Um, we're guilty. Everyone in this room is guilty. Very important practical lessons. And we hope that we're going to see the solution to our guilt. And it's definitely not in what we can do. It has to be in what your son did for us. And it's in his name we pray and we are grateful. And God's people said,